Thank you, praise team, for that reminder. Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's great to see you this morning. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you, how do you view the Bible? How do you view the Bible? If you look at your feelings and your affections towards it, what does it show about how you view it? If you look at how you read it, or if you're honest, how you don't read it, what does it show about how you view the Bible? If you look at even when you do read it, what your goal is for reading it, what does that show about how you view the Bible? There's some here today who may view the Bible with skepticism, not even sure if it's true. There's some of you who may say, well, it's true, but your attitude towards the Bible is one really of indifference. It just seems kind of irrelevant to you or boring to you, and you act like it's really not worth your time. Some of you may affirm the Bible, oh, yes, I know it's God's Word, I know it is true, but it just stops there for you. It's just an affirmation. But for some of you, when you view the Bible, you view it with a sense of longing, a sense of urgency, a sense of desperation for it because you want it so much. Which is true for you today? How do you view God's Word? So we continue in the Psalms today. Last week and this week, we're looking at the foundation of how the psalmist views the Word of God. So I want you to find Psalm 119 this morning. Psalm 119. We come to the longest chapter in the entire Bible and the longest psalm. Now, don't panic. Um, this chapter is longer than the entire book of Ephesians. If you remember, it took us 50 weeks to work through Ephesians. We worked through that this past year. There's more verses in this psalm than there was in the entire book of Ephesians that took us 50 weeks to get through. So no, we're not going to go verse by verse through everything in this psalm. We'll be here for more than 50 hours today, and I'm not going to do that to you. What I want to do today is to see the beauty of what Psalm 119 is, so that when you read it on your own, you can understand what's being painted for us here. Now, I do hope this week you will take time to read all 176 verses of Psalm 119 to see the beauty of what is put out before us. We're going to hone in on one particular part of Psalm 119 because there's a truth I want you to see that I think summarizes the entire psalm. Before we get to that, let me give you a big picture of Psalm 119 so when you read it on your own, you know what you're looking at here. Psalm 119 is a massive, and in this very literal word, it's a massive poem here. It is 176 verses divided up into 22 different stanzas. If you look at the beginning of Psalm 119, you'll see the first eight verses have the word Aleph above it. The next eight have the word Bet above it. As you go through, you'll see Aleph, Bet, Gimel, all the way to Ta. These are the Hebrew alphabet. This would be the equivalent of us writing a 22, or longer than that, stanza poem, and have A, and then some verses, B, some verses, C, and then some verses. But the psalmist here is trying to do something very poetic. So not only do you see the word Aleph or Bet or Gimel above each one of those, the very first word of every one of those verses begins with the word, the letter above it. So the, the psalmist here is doing a very poetic thing here and painting something for us. In all 22 of these stanzas, each one is eight verses. So you OCD type A people, be happy. You've got 22 perfectly symmetrical eight-verse sections here that all follow precisely the Hebrew alphabet. And the first word of each one of the sections begins with a letter above it. It is an OCD person's dream in terms of a poetic structure in the Bible here. But this is because it is a poem, it doesn't have a logical argument form. When we worked through Ephesians, it was this beautiful laid out thing, chapters 1, 2, and 3, who we are in Christ, 4, 5, and 6, how do we live because of that? You don't find that in Psalm 119. It is a poem. It's not making a logical argument step by step by step. Think artistry with this. The best description I've heard of one Psalm 119 this week when I was studying on it was someone said, think of a kaleidoscope. So think back to your childhood. Did you ever have one of those kaleidoscope tubes that you held up and looked up to the bright light of the sun, and as you turned it, you saw all those like little colored dots? That's what Psalm 119 is like. On the surface, at a quick reading, it can appear very random to you like a kaleidoscope. 
that same kaleidoscope that looks random, as you, more as you look at it, forms a very beautiful, consistent pattern that shows you something beautiful. And that's what's happening with Psalm 119. It's artistry to paint a picture for us of one big message. And that message is really an elaboration of what we saw last week. Last week we saw Psalm 19. We're to be amazed that God has spoken to us. Psalm 119 is that, but honing in on the fact that God has spoken to us through His Word. 176 verses in 22 different stanzas, all about God speaking through His written Word for us. As you read it on your own, and even the verses we read today, you're going to see lots of words for the Word of God. His law, His statutes, His commands, His decrees, His precepts, His Word. And all these are being used interchangeably. They have some nuanced differences, but they're all being used interchangeably to hold up the written Word of God and how we should feel to it. In fact, almost all, there's only a handful of verses that do not have a direct reference to it. Almost every verse of these 176 has a direct reference to the written Word of God somewhere in it. It is a massive poetic psalm, a massive kaleidoscope for us, painting a beautiful, beautiful picture of the written Word of God. That forces us back to the question I asked at the beginning. How do you view the written Word of God? How do you view the Bible, the Scriptures? What is your attitude and approach towards it? Psalm 119 is a massive poem to show us how the psalmist, how the author felt towards God's Word and to model for us what our hearts should feel towards the Word of God. So I want you to turn to the very end of Psalm 119 today. We're going to look at the very last section of it, the section labeled Tal, the very last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's verses 169 to 176. I told you we're not going to read the whole psalm today, so don't panic here. We're going to hone in on the final section of it because this is a beautiful summary of the entire psalm. It's a beautiful summary that encapsulates what all these 176 verses are painting for us and shows us what we should be looking for. So we prepare to read God's Word this morning. I want you to look for as we read what the psalmist's attitude was towards the Word of God. As you read the author's writings here, what was his approach? What was his heart? What was his view towards the written Word of God, towards the Scripture? Was it something of indifference to him that he just read occasionally? Was it something that was just dry to him that he did out of obligation? Or was it something more for him? If it was something more, what was it that drove him towards the Word of God? What was his attitude to the Word of God? So let's start this morning in Psalm 119, verse 169. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the written word of God that he's given to us here. Psalm 119, starting in verse 169, reading to the end of the chapter. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word. For all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to us. God, that you have not hidden yourself from us, but God, you have shown us very clearly who you are, who we are, what it means to know you. And God, I pray this morning as we look at this part of Psalm 119, God, that your word would come alive to us, that your Holy Spirit would fill us and open our eyes to the wonders of your word. And God, I pray today we would come away with a, a renewed sense of awe and appreciation for your word to us. I pray it would drive us to love you more and be in awe of you the God who's revealed himself to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
So as we looked at the end of Psalm 119, so we just read that, I hope you notice how much the author loved the Word of God. Now, we don't know who the author is. It does not tell us. There's many authors in Psalms. We do not know who wrote this particular one. But whoever the author was of Psalm 119, I hope you notice how much he loved the written Word of God and how much he wanted the Word of God to change him. So don't you see this morning, this main idea from Psalm 119 is simply this. We desperately need God's Word to change our thinking. We desperately need God's word to change our thinking. Friends, you and I have a desperate need. It is something that social media cannot fix. It's something that scrolling through hours on our phone will not solve. It's something that entertainment will not do. something that our our pursuits and our recreation will not solve. We have a need, and that is for our thinking to be changed. Why? Because our default is selfishness. Our default is self-reliance. Our default is to go our own way, not the way of God. And so we need our thinking to be changed. God loves us so much, though, that he doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't rescue us and save us so we don't go to hell. He rescues us and he saves us so that we can know him and we can be transformed by him so that we glorify him. As we saw all through our study of John and our study of Ephesians, that God loves taking sinners like us and adopting us into his family and transforming us as we're in his presence and making us into who he desires for us to be and radically changing us so that we might glorify him. And what does he primarily use to change us? He uses his word, the Bible, the scriptures, the written word of God. Because as we read the word of God, the Holy Spirit who's within us opens our eyes to understand. The Holy Spirit convicts us of what we're reading, convicts us of sin or not. The Holy Spirit encourages us through the word of God. As we live in community with one another as the church, as the body of Christ together, we speak the word of God to one another. And God transforms us as the Holy Spirit applies the word of God to our life. As other believers remind us of the word of God. Friends, we desperately need the word of God to change our thinking. Look back in Psalm 119. I want you to see how much the psalmist longed for God's word. How desperate he was for it here. Look back in verse 172. He says, my tongue will sing of your word. Look at verse 173, the second phrase of it. I have chosen your precepts. Verse 174, the second phrase, your law is my delight. Or verse 176, that second phrase, I do not forget your commandments. Over and over in this section, all throughout Psalm 119, you see the psalmist crying out this longing for God's word. Now let me say this, in our cultural lens, it can be easy to look at this and feel like it's a little bit pretentious. Kind of, is our culture is either to look at this and be like, what do you mean? You, you don't forget God's words? You've never forgotten that? You always delight in it? And this can come across pretentious to us. If I came in and you said, how are you? And if I said, I never forget God's word. You know, that would come across very boastful and arrogant and bragging. That's not what he's doing here. We need to kind of put aside our cultural lens and realize what this is. He's not bragging. He's not boasting. This is a poetic way at the time of expressing what he wants his life to be like. He's not saying, I've never forgotten your word. He's saying, I want my life to be a life that does not forget your word. He's not saying here that I never forget these things. That you're, He's never saying here that I've never been in a time I don't delight in. He's saying, I want my life to always delight in your word. I want my life to be a life ordered by your word. He's expressing a deep longing, and he knows he needs it. Look back in verse 176, how he describes himself here. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now, he's not saying I've lost the faith. He's not saying I've apostatized and turned my back on on faith in this. He's looking at God's word, and he's seeing the holiness of God and what God requires. And he sees his own heart, and he's honest with God. And friends, there's a huge lesson for us in this, because there's no pretense here with them. 
He doesn't have to go to God and act like he's got it all figured out. God sees his heart, and he sees his own heart. And so he goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I have gone astray. I am wandering like a lost sheep. He knows he is prone to wander. You think of the hymn, Come Thou Found. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In the song we just sang right before the offering time, we had that expression there about asking the Lord to silence our urge towards rebellion. We know our own hearts, and we know how quickly our hearts want to run away from God. And so the psalmist is crying out in desperation here because he knows how easily he wanders. He knows how easily he falls into temptation. He knows how easily he loses focus on God. He knows how easily he starts to live for himself instead of for God. And he cries out in desperation, I am a lost sheep. And the imagery here should be stunning for us. In our culture, we think of something lost. We think of like a lost dog. Well, dogs are pretty self-reliant. They usually can find their way home. A sheep can't find his way home. A sheep is not self-reliant. If a sheep wanders from the fold, he just keeps wandering. If he's lost, he just keeps going in his way of loss. He just keeps going and going and going in his lostness there. And that's what this guy is saying. Whoever wrote this is saying, I look at my heart. My heart is so prone to wander. Lord, I am like a lost sheep. I have no hope. But he cries out, seek your servant. He cries out to God to pursue him. He needs God to rescue him. That's why the beginning of this part of Psalm 119 is a cry to him. Look at verse 169. It says, let my cry come before you. This literally is a word for a ringing cry, an ear-piercing cry. He is desperate for God. He is desperate for the word of God. And so he is crying out with an ear-piercing cry to get the attention of the Lord here. Verse 170, he says, let my plea come before you. Here, plea means supplication, a serious request. He is desperate. He knows he wanders. And so he cries out to the Lord with an ear-piercing cry. He pleads to the Lord with a supplication, with a serious request. But I don't want us to miss something significant here. He knows his desperation. He has the longing in his heart to know God. So what does he do? He cries out to God for help, but does he sit by passively waiting on something to happen? Now look at what he does. He knows God. He knows he can cry out to God. He knows God will help, and he knows how God will help, so he runs to the written word of God. Look at verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding as I quietly meditate all day long, all day long, until I get my answer. No. What does he say? Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to what? According to your word. He cries to God for help, then he runs to the written word of God to find the answer, to find the help he needs. Verse 170 is very similar. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to my plans, Lord. No. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to what? He cries to God for help, then he runs to the written word of God to find the help he needs. Verse 171. My lips will pour forth praise. For you teach me what? Your what? Your statutes. Another word for God's rules. Another word for the written Word of God. And then 175 beautifully pulls all this together. He says, Let my soul live and praise you, and let what help me? What does he say will help me? Let what help me? Your rules. He cries to the Lord in desperation. He longs for God. He needs God. He sees his heart being so prone to wander. So he cries to God for help in his life, but he doesn't sit by passively waiting. He runs to the Word of God to find help. From the Lord. Friends, we desperately need the Word of God to change our thinking. Because there is a battle going on for our souls and for our lives. It's a battle that's won or lost in our minds. 
people around us, Hollywood is trying to change our thinking to convince us of what is right and wrong. You have teachers in school trying to convince you of whether or not there's a God. You have friends around you trying to convince you of what's normal or not normal, moral or not moral, to get you to conform to them. Because all around us are pressures pulling us to think differently in the Lord. And inside us is our own flesh that longs for what the world offers. And if we're not careful, we'll be like what the psalmist says here, where we're going astray like a lost sheep. But God loves us so much, he gives us all we need to have our thinking corrected. To not be led astray by the lies world, to not be led astray by our own fleshly desires. He gives us his written word plainly before us to change our thinking. He gives us his Holy Spirit to illumine his word and give us understanding of his word. He gives us other believers to remind us of the word, but it all goes back to his word. God has spoken to us and given us what we need. It's not just in Psalm 119 you see this. It's all throughout the scriptures. You see in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 reminds us of this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Of your mind, of your thinking. We're transformed as the word of God changes our thinking so that by testing we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 as well. Colossians 1, this is Paul's prayer for the people at Colossae. <clears throat> he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the, what's the next word? The knowledge, the thinking about his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he goes, and this is the fruit now of knowing God's will, of understanding, of having our thinking corrected by the word. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. God's word changes our thinking. God, as we know him, delights in changing our thinking. There's four ways I want you to see in this particular psalm, in Psalm 119, that God's word changes our thinking. This is not an exhaustive list. There's so many ways the riches of the word of God changes our thinking, but there's four in this psalm I just want you to see of how the word of God, when we encounter it, and when we long for it, how it transforms us. The first way I want you to see in Psalm 119 how God's word changes our thinking is it changes us from self-reliance to reliance on God. It changes us from self-reliance to reliance on God. The default for us, and especially in our culture, is to think we are self-sufficient. That we can get through life on our own, that we've got this thing mapped out, that we're okay. And if we're not careful, we bring that into our faith. Right? Like, I can beat that sin on my own. I can change that bitterness on my own. And we begin to bring self-sufficiency, which is so deadly to our faith. Look at verse 173 here. It says, Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. As the psalmist here has studied God's word, as he's thought about the precepts of God, he runs to the Lord for help. He's not trying to be self-sufficient. He knows he can't be self-sufficient, so he cries out to the Lord to change his self-sufficiency here into reliance on God. And he says in verse 173, Let your hand be ready to help me. Hand is a metaphor, an image for God's actions, for God working. Do you remember in Psalm 19 from last week? we look at the fact that God created a billion trillion stars, Psalm 19 described it as the work of his fingers. That God's fingers made the billion trillion stars. That God's fingers put in place the galaxy and everything you see in the whole world. And now the psalmist who knows God's fingers can make a billion trillion stars cries out and says, let your hand be ready to help me. He's asking for God's strength that can create the whole universe to come now to his aid. And what does he want God's strength to do for him? Look at verse 175. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. He knows he can't bring life to his own soul. 
He knows he can't follow God in his own strength. He knows he can't naturally go run and praise the Lord. So he cries out to the God who spoke the universe into being, whose fingers made a billion trillion stars, and says, now let your hand come help me. God's word frees us from self-reliance and drives us to reliance on God. It changes our thinking. There's a second thing I want to see what the word of God changes in us. It changes our thinking so that we no longer live for self, but instead live for God. It changes our thinking from a self-focus of living for self to a Godward focus of living for God. Friends, again, our default position apart from God's grace is we act like we're the center of the universe. If you look at most conflict you have with your spouse, with your roommates, with your friends, what's most of it about is mostly because our way is not getting met. Our universe, where we've placed ourselves, everything's not orbiting in the way we want to around us. We act like in our default everything is about us, our needs, our wants. Our preferences, but God's word changes our thinking and moves us from living for self to living for God. Look at verses 171 and 172 here. He cries out, My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. All of the, our tongues that are so quick sometimes to tear down, to promote self, to push our own selfishness, now by God's grace can be turned to pour forth the praise of God, to sing of the word of God, to teach others the word of God. God's grace can turn us from ourself to him. I want you to go back a few verses in Psalm, one, in Psalm uh, 119 to verse 35 and 36. In verse 35 and 36, this is an incredible part of God's word here. I want you to see that was not our main part of the text today, of what God's word does for us. In verse 35, look at this. The psalmist here cries out, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now look at verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And what a prayer to pray. God, incline my heart not to the selfishness that in my flesh I'm going to be drawn to, but incline my heart to your testimonies and to your ways. Friends, God uses his word to change us. His word changes us from self-sufficiency to dependence upon him. It changes from selfishness to living for him. But third, I want you to see from Psalm 119 here that God's word changes from hopelessness to hope. From hopelessness to hope. We saw last week in the first, or two weeks ago in the first lament psalm that life is hard. We'll say that we'll spend several weeks coming up next month in the lament psalms, the psalms of suffering, of how do we process the hardships of sufferings and the trials of life. Friends, life is hard, but God's word helps us find hope in the hardships of life. Look at verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The psalmist here is crying out for rescue from the Lord. He wants to be saved. He wants to be rescued from his trials, his tribulations, the people who are coming after him. And he knows he has hope in the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that God's going to rescue us immediately. But the word of God takes us in our trials and our sufferings and lets us know that rescue will happen, that eternity is coming when all wrongs are made right, when justice will happen, when we see that our sufferings in this life were not in vain. And I want you to see this where he says this a few verses earlier, even more clearly. Go back to verse 92. It's another incredible verse I hope you'll think on from Psalm 119. In verse 92, he says this, If your law had not been my delight... I would have perished in my affliction. And catch that. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The hopelessness would have been overwhelming. The psalmist apparently has endured great suffering, and it would have been overwhelming to him. But because God's word, the written word of God, was his delight, he found hope in this, and he did not perish 
and his affliction. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. God's word becomes an anchor for us in the trials and suffering of life because it reminds us of eternity. It reminds us of the faithfulness of God. It reminds us of all those things that justice will come, that God will use our sufferings for good. And we see all that, and it turns us to hope. God's word changes our thinking from self-reliance to reliance on God, from selfishness to living for God, from hopelessness to hope. And number four, God's word changes our thinking from embracing folly to embracing wisdom. It changes us from embracing folly to embracing wisdom. Friends, we are born running after folly. God's word is what he gives us to change us from folly to wisdom. Look at verse 169 here. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. God offers us understanding. He offers to us wisdom that corrects the folly of our own flesh, that corrects the folly of our own sinful tendencies. And he offers us his wisdom, the path of life, his will that will give us all that we need. Yet I want you to see this earlier in the psalm. There's a beautiful picture. Let's go back to verse 97. In verse 97 here in the same psalm, this is the section labeled Mim. He begins, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 98, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And then verse 100, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Again, he's not being presumptuous here or being pretentious here in this. He's simply saying God's wisdom is far greater than anything the world can offer. What God provides us in his word is far greater than anything any human can teach us. It's far wiser than anything the people of the world have to offer, that he has what he needs in the word of God. And all that culminates with perhaps a verse you memorized as a child, verse 105, just a few verses down. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now that verse is not isolated. That verse is in this beautiful picture of how the word of God changes us from folly to wisdom. God uses his word to change us. From self-reliance to reliance on God. From selfishness to living for God. From hopelessness to hope and from folly to wisdom. But that raises the question, how does God's word change us? And I fear it's so easy to miss this. And I know I got this wrong for a long time in my life. Because so often, friends, we approach our reading of the Bible looking for a rule to do. Looking for something to do. We go to the Bible looking for my application for today of something that I need to do in light of this. We've been conditioned for this approach. So many devotionals that are not bad, but they take a verse and they find, here's the thing you need to do because of it. So many of our accountability groups over the years have been, okay, as you read the Bible, tell me what you're supposed to do because of what you read today. We've been conditioned over the years to think the Word of God changes us by us finding our life application point, finding the thing that I have to do in response to it. The problem, friends, is that makes the Bible about us. And the Bible is not about us. It is for us. It is not about us. The Bible is about God and about knowing God. Look at verse 169 here. He says, let my cry, my cry, look at how personal it is. Let my cry come, come before you, O Lord. Lord is in capitals. This is Yahweh. He's saying very boldly to Yahweh, to the great I am, the one who, with the work of his fingers, created a billion trillion Stars, He says, let my cry come before you. He is boldly walking in to the throne room of Yahweh to say, let my plea come before you. He's boldly talking to the Creator. Friends, what we should see from this 
is the way the Bible changes us is not by us finding our life application for, for today, but we go to the Bible to be in awe of God. The Bible changes us when we go to the Bible to be in awe of Him, not when we look for something I need to do or change today. One of my favorite authors says this. He said, A godly life is lived out of an astonished heart. Catch that. A godly life is lived out of an astonished heart. A heart that is astonished at grace. We go to the Bible to be astonished. To be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and grace and the gospel. How does the Bible change us? The Bible changes us by letting us be astonished at God. It shows us the bigness of God. It shows us the character of Yahweh. It shows us His mercy and His grace. And the Bible changes us not by us coming away with my point of application for my life today. Rather, we come away changed when we encounter Yahweh for who He is. And we encounter God for who He really is. There's a book I'm in the middle of reading that I've is really rocking my world. It's a book called The Habits of Grace. When I finish it, if it's as good as it has been so far, I'll probably buy a copy for every single one of you. This is a book that's been that great so far, but I'm going to finish it first before I give it to you. Um, but in The Habits of Grace, he says this. He said, Coming to the Scriptures to see and to feel makes for a drastically different approach than coming to the Scriptures to do. Did you catch that? Coming to the Scriptures to see and to feel, to be amazed by God, is very different than coming to the Scriptures for something for me to do. We come to the Scriptures most deeply because of who we will see, not for what we must do. Because how are we going to be changed by the Scriptures? How is our Father going to be turned to wisdom? How is our hopelessness going to be turned to hope? How is our selfishness going to be turned to God-centeredness? How is our self-reliance going to be turned to dependence on God? Not when we open our Bible each day going, okay, what is in here for me today? When we open our Bibles going, God, I want to see you. When we're astonished by God. Friends, we desperately need the Word of God because we desperately need God. We desperately need to know God and we desperately need to be astonished by Him. And as we're astonished by Him, as we encounter Him in the pages of Scripture, then our lives are changed. Friends, we desperately need God's Word to change us because it shows us who He is and astonishes our heart that we can like we saw here with the psalmist, we can approach Yahweh, the great I Am, and let our cry come before Him. And He answers and gives us understanding according to His Word. Because I want to ask you this morning, back to that first question, how do you view the Bible? How do you view God's written Word for us? Do you long for it? Is it something you approach with indifference? Is it something you approach with skepticism? Or is it something you approach because you want to be astonished by God? Because you see your own heart's proneness to wander, and you don't want to wander, and you know the hope comes from seeing your Creator as He's revealed Himself. Do you long for God's Word in your life? Friends, with that, let me ask you, when was the last time you opened God's Word and were just astonished? Not that you opened it and you found, oh, I need to do that now. But you opened God's Word and you were just blown away by the grace of God. You were blown away by the character of God or the bigness or his attributes. And you were just amazed at the God who spoke this to us. When was the last time you were amazed at God's word? And friends, with that, when was the last time you were changed by God's word? Not because you were going to it for a self-help book to fix you, but because you were so astonished by God, it changed something in your life. Fellow Christians, I want us to think about that this morning. We come to communion this morning. I want us to reflect on that very question. God has revealed himself to us, and are we astonished by that? Are we amazed that the God who spoke the universe into existence has spoken 
to us and spoken clearly to us in his word? Are we astonished by him? Are we opening his word, longing for it, astonished that we get to meet with the creator? And is it changing us because we are there? You know, God gives many grace gifts to change us, to grow us. And the focus of Psalm 119 is the written word of God. Another grace gift that God's word tells about is the, is the gift of communion. Communion of the Lord's Supper is a reminder for us. It's a tool that God uses to remind us of what he has done for us to adopt us into his family, to make us his own, so that we can open the Bible and have the Holy Spirit within us so that we can understand it. It reminds us of the cost there was for us to be his child so we can even hear his voice as his sheep, as his children. Communion reminds us of what the cost was for us to be made sons and daughters of God. It is his grace gift, just like we have the word of God. It's a grace gift from God to remind us of the cost there was to become his children. And no surprise, God hasn't left us wondering what it's to do to us and how we're to approach it. He's revealed it very clearly in his word. I want you to see 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just a few verses as we prepare our hearts for communion and reflect on our response to, to God's word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes to the people in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. In verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. So this is my body, which is for you. <clears throat> Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, we begin communion for a follower of Christ as an act of remembrance. Remembering that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. When we take the bread, it reminds us that he gladly gave of his life, that his body was broken on the cross, where the wrath of a holy God that should have been poured out on us got poured out on him, that his blood was shed. The juice reminds us of his blood that was shed so that we would not have to bear the wrath of God. Friends, if we think about what we see in Psalm 119 here, that God has spoken to us. Friends, apart from Christ, all we would hear is judgment because we're guilty sinners. But in Christ, we now can approach God, covered in Christ's righteousness. We can do what the psalmist did here in approaching Yahweh and saying, let my cry come before you. And we're not struck down because of our sin, because when we approach him boldly, we are covered with Christ's righteousness. And so we can talk to God, and we can hear from the Lord, and we can experience intimacy with our Creator because of what Christ has done. We remember that communion reminds us of the great cost there was to make us His children so we can hear His voice. But there's more than just remembering in the past. Look at verse 26, the very next one. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Communion is not just past tense. It's a forward-looking as well. Knowing that Christ who came... And rose again and sent it back to heaven is coming back again. That Christ is coming back to take us forever to be with him. When we see him with an unveiled face. So communion is also remembering what's still to come. When we, the bride of Christ, as people, are united forever with him. So it's remembering the past. It's rejoicing at what's to come. There's also a point of serious reflection. Look at verses 27 to 29 in the same text. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eat, who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And there's a serious warning in this. This is only for a follower of Christ. Friends, if you do not believe that Christ is God, that he came and bore your penalty on the cross, that he died and rose again, then this is not for you to celebrate. There's no shame in you staying in your seat when we come to observe it. 
I'd encourage you to do that and just to cry out to the Lord going, I'm not sure if this is real. I approach your word with skepticism, whatever. And just say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And use this time to pray and to cry out to God. These people around me are either crazy or they're right. One of the two. They all believe that you're real. If you're real, show yourself to me. And use this time for that. This is only for those who are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. But if you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, and you know you've experienced God's grace, this is for you a time to celebrate, to remember the sacrifice that made a way for you to be a child of God, to rejoice that Christ is coming again, but even to pause and reflect. So this morning, I want to challenge us in light of Psalm 119, to let our reflection be about the Word of God. Christ redeemed us not just so we don't go to hell. Christ redeemed us so we could be in a relationship with Him. He speaks to us primarily through His written Word. Friends, do we long to hear our Creator in His Word? When was the last time we opened the Bible to be astonished? When was the last time we opened the Bible because we wanted to see God for all of his beauty and all of his glory? When was the last time it transformed us because we had encountered God in Scripture? I'd encourage you as we sing, as we reflect in communion, to think about that. And if we found our hearts longings for God, for his glory, for his word, are weak, let's confess that to him. That's part of the beauty of communion. It reminds us of the cost of our salvation, but it also reminds us our sins are forgiven in Christ. So just to take a few minutes where you're seated, whether it's that or something else you reflect on, but to ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart. If there's sins in my life I haven't confessed, would you remind me of those and would you do business with the Lord? Because he's promised if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to invite you, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, to come to eat of the bread and drink of the cup and be reminded of the great sacrifice that made a way for us to become his children that we might know him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your grace upon grace upon grace. God, that took guilty, undeserving sinners like us who deserve nothing but your judgment and your wrath. And God, you have poured out forgiveness for us. You've forgiven us of our sins, but you've adopted us and made us your children. You've seated us at your table and given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, you have not only done that, you've given us grace upon grace upon grace. God, you've spoken to us in your word. We can hear your voice. God, you guide us, you direct us, you lead us. You've given us your Holy Spirit within us who convicts us, who encourages us. You've given us brothers and sisters in Christ. God, you have given us so much. God, I pray in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters as we celebrate communion. God, that our hearts would overflow with thanksgiving for all that you've done for us. And God, I pray that as we receive the elements, as we see the bread and the juice, we remind the Lord Jesus of what you did, that you were willing to suffer and die for the forgiveness of our sins to, to redeem us, to adopt us, to make us your own. But I pray even as we take this, we'd be reminded that you haven't left us alone since then. You saved us that we could be in a relationship with you you continue to guide us and direct us and speak to us. And God, I pray we would long to know you more. So Lord, in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters, would you use this time of reflection, this time of celebration to stir our faith, to stir our affections for you, to increase our longings for you, to increase our longings for your word and to grow up your body, your church, Lord, to be all that you want us to be. Thank you for loving us so with a love far beyond anything we could fathom or imagine. We'll give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our praise team is going to come receive the elements, and then our deacons will direct you to come to the front to receive the bread and the juice.